Welcome back to Roshcast for episode 50. Wow, did you say episode 50? I can't believe we're already there. It's been a real journey building this podcast up from the original concept two years ago. And in the last year, we've seen some pretty big changes, including Mega joining the team. We're excited to see how Roshcast continues to evolve over the next 50 episodes in two years. Truly none of this would have been possible without you. No, not you, Nachi. You, our loyal listeners. We've been seeing a continual rise in our listener base, and we're at an all-time high right now. Your listenership and feedback is what drives us to keep delivering high-quality content. We value every moment you give your attention to us, and we try our best to design the episode to maximize your learning. We have a pretty involved process for choosing questions to present to you and for how we manipulate and deliver the content. Mega and I spend a fair bit of time discussing, reviewing, and revising all the information before we process it and get it to your ears. Also briefly worth mentioning, for those of you in residency, February is creeping up and the in-training exam will be here before you know it. Go back and listen to old episodes while you commute, work out, or even during planned study time. We have covered over 300 questions in this podcast with a lot of depth and repetition on core concepts. And even if you're done with residency, emergency medicine is a lifelong learning process and tuning in is a great way to get a regular dose of core content. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get geared up for a great episode number 50. Our first question is all about the heart. A 70-year-old woman with a history of coronary artery disease, hypertension, and diabetes presents to the ED with chest pressure and shortness of breath. Her exam is notable for diffuse rowels and a new holosystolic murmur over the mid-axillary line. Which of the following is most likely to be seen on this patient's EKG? Is it A, biventricular tachycardia, B, S1Q3T3 pattern, C, ST depressions in 1, V6, and AVL without any ST elevations, or D, ST elevations in leads 2, 3, and AVF? So this is a classic multi-step problem, and just getting the first part right won't be enough. A new holosystolic murmur over the mid-axillary line, rawls, and shortness of breath. They're describing acute mitral valve regurgitation here. And maybe you already got that, but now you need to determine what EKG finding you would see with acute mitral regurg. Well, acute mitral regurgitation is primarily caused by rupture of the papillary muscles or chordae tendinae. And this is often from chance mural cardiac ischemia or from a valve perforation secondary to endocarditis. When caused by an MI, it has to be an ST elevation MI and is most often inferior. So the answer here would be choice D, ST elevations in leads 2, 3, and AVF. Wow, that is a multi-step problem. And if you missed one of the steps in there, you could have probably got this down to 50-50 between choices C and D first by using some intelligent test-taking strategies. Choice A, biventricular tachycardia. That is essentially pathognomonic for digoxin toxicity. And choice B, S1Q3T3 pattern, describes a deep S-wave in lead 1, Q-wave and inverted T-waves in lead 3, and this is classically associated with pulmonary embolism, but is neither sensitive nor specific for the presence of a PE. And for choice C, ST depressions in leads 1, V6, AVL without ST elevations, these are indicative of a lateral wall NSTEMI. A mitral valve rupture is unlikely in the setting of a lateral NSTEMI. But would an inferior lesion be more associated with acute mitral valve regurgitation than a lateral lesion? That's a great question, and let's go a bit above and beyond here. Normal anatomy of the mitral valve has two papillary muscles, the posterior medial and the anterior lateral. The posterior medial has a single blood supply from the RCA, whereas the anterior lateral has dual supply from the LAD and left circumflex. So an inferior MI, where the right coronary is affected, is more likely to bring about an acute mitral regurgitation. That makes a lot of sense. So inferior STEMI, acute mitral regurgitation, 
intuitively because of the RC is solely feeding the posteromedial papillary. Got it. And the treatment for an acute mitral regurgitation episode, as in this setting, would almost always be emergency surgery for valve repair. Temporizing treatments include nitrates to reduce afterload and increase forward flow out of the heart, and possibly inotropes like dobutamine. All right, Mega, as we're transferring this patient over for emergent surgery, your next patient is waiting for you. A 26-year-old woman with no known past medical history presents with three days of bleeding gums after brushing her teeth. She recalls having some URI symptoms two weeks ago. Her exam is unremarkable except for oozing from the gums. Labs show a platelet count of 23,000. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in management? Is it A, IVIG, B, platelet transfusion, C, steroids and IVIG, or D, steroids, IVIG, and platelet transfusion? So this is another second-order question. Let's first figure out what our patient has and then discuss treatment. This patient has some minor bleeding from her gums and had a viral syndrome two weeks ago. This is a classic description for immune thrombocytopenia, formerly known as idiopathic thrombocytopenic purpura, or ITP. The pathogenesis of immune thrombocytopenia is related to increased platelet destruction along with inhibition of platelet production via production of autoantibodies. Many cases of ITP, like in our patient, are related to preceding viral infection. Okay, great. So we nailed that part. Our patient has ITP. But we still haven't answered the question. Should we give her IVIG, steroids, platelets? All right, all right. I'm getting there, Nachi. Treatment depends on platelet level and bleeding. If the platelet count is below 30,000, with or without mild bleeding, like our patient, treatment is with answer choice C, glucocorticoids and IVIG. For those with severe or life-threatening bleeding, platelet transfusion should be added to that as well. In the absence of major bleeding, platelets should be transfused for a platelet count under 10,000 because of the risk of spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage. Our patient with immune thrombocytopenia presented with gingival bleeding. Patients can also present with petechiae, epistaxis, menorrhagia, GI bleeding, and intracranial hemorrhage. So make sure you consider ITP in your differential when you don't know why your patient is bleeding. Mega, here's a bonus question. Do you know the dose of prednisone for immune thrombocytopenia? That will be one milligram per kilogram once daily. And Nachi, you're up for the next question. Unfortunately, we've been hearing a lot about the comeback of measles recently, so let's review that. Which of the following is most suggestive of measles infection? Is it A, a prodrome of fever, lymphadenopathy, and conjunctivitis, followed by a maculopapular rash that starts on the face and spreads to the trunk and limbs? B, diffuse maculopapular rash with white spots on the buccal mucosa? C, high fever for three days followed by the appearance of a pink maculopapular rash after defervescence? Or D, presence of shallow ulcers on oral mucosa and vesicular lesions on the palms and soles? Measles, also known as rubiola, starts with a prodrome of fever and the three Cs, coryza, cough, and conjunctivitis, and these last for several days. This is then followed by answer choice B, diffuse maculopapular rash, with white spots on the buccal mucosa, these white spots are called coplic spots and are pathognomonic for measles. In the diffuse maculopapular rash, that typically starts on the face and spreads to the extremities. Measles is caused by a paramyxovirus and it can be spread by respiratory contact. Complications of measles are dangerous. They include diarrhea, otitis media, pneumonia, myocarditis, pericarditis, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis, and subacute sclerosing panencephalitis. Treatment is usually just supportive. For these questions, even if you don't get the right association immediately, remember that the other answer choices will often describe another illness. This is something that test writers often do. 
Use it to your advantage and knock out the ones you know are wrong. With that in mind, choice A, a prodrome of fever, conjunctivitis, and lymphadenopathy, followed by a maculopapular rash that starts on the face and spreads to the trunk and limbs, that is suggestive of a rubella infection, which is caused by a toga virus. It is spread by respiratory droplets. Treatment here is usually supportive, and complications are unusual except in pregnancy when it can cause congenital rubella syndrome resulting in sensory neural deafness, cataracts, cardiac malformations, blueberry muffin spots, and neurologic sequelae. Don't get rubella, also called German measles, mixed up with rubiola or measles. Take some time to memorize the differences. Choice C, high fever for three days, followed by the appearance of a pink maculopapular rash after abrupt defervescence. This is a classic description of roseola, also known as exanthema subitum or 6 disease, and it's caused by HHV6 or 7. This is a benign condition and treatment is supportive. Again, the key association here was high fever followed by abrupt defervescence. Think roseola. Choice D, presence of shallow ulcers on the oral mucosa and vesicular lesions on the palms and soles. Here they're describing hand, foot, and mouth disease, which is caused by Coxsackie virus. It's spread by the fecal-oral route, respiratory droplets, and contact with skin lesions. This is seen most commonly in preschool-age children, and seasonally, the incidence peaks in the summer and autumn. Treatment here is again supportive. This is a great question for process of elimination. And wait, did we just treat all of these supportively? We did, but you still have to be able to tell them apart and know the differences. Moving on from one rash to another. A 23-year-old man who has unprotected receptive anal intercourse presents the ED with two weeks of worsening rectal pain and dyskesia. On exam, he has numerous ulcers in the anal rectal area and a crop of grouped vesicles containing clear fluid on an erythematous base. The surrounding skin shows no signs of cellulitis or abscess. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step? Is it A, refer the patient to a surgeon for operative intervention, B, send a serology test, C, send a zanc smear, or D, treat with acyclovir? Another second-order question. What a win for our episode. Our patient has a painful vesicular rash on an erythematous base in the anal rectal area. This is consistent with herpes simplex proctitis. Okay, well, that was the easy part of the question. But do you test or treat first? Well, that's the key to this question. The diagnosis here is clinical, so go ahead and treat with antivirals like answer choice D, acyclovir. Antivirals shorten the duration of the illness, decrease viral shedding, and improve any constitutional symptoms. Right, and going over the other answer choices as well, answer choice A, referral to a surgeon, that may be needed in cases of condylomata acuminata, but for herpes proctitis, primary management is with antivirals. Choice B, serology, that can be sent, but a significant portion of the adult population will already be seropositive, so it's not really that useful in confirming the diagnosis. And choice C, zanc smear, that can also be sent after puncturing a vesicle and collecting fluid, but a negative result here won't rule out herpes. All right, Nachi, I think that's enough with the rashes for today. But we do have another bleeder. A five-year-old boy with von Willebrand's disease presents with persistent bleeding after he lost a tooth four hours ago. Vital signs look fine. Physical exam reveals oozing at the side of the tooth, which persists despite pressure. Which of the following is the most appropriate treatment? Is it A, desmopressin, B, factor VIII concentrate, C, fresh frozen plasma, or D, vitamin K? Most appropriate treatment for von Willebrand's disease? That has to be choice A, desmopressin. Correct. And as a review, von Willebrand's disease is an autosomal dominant coagulation disorder in which von Willebrand's factor is low, dysfunctional, or absent. 
One Willebrand factor facilitates platelet adhesion and links platelet membrane receptors to the endothelium. There are three types of von Willebrand's disease to know about. Type 1 is the most common type, and that has a mild to moderate decrease in von Willebrand factor. Type 2 has dysfunctional von Willebrand factor, and type 3 has no detectable von Willebrand factor. Desmopressin, or DDAVP, is the first-line treatment for bleeding in all types and is sufficient in most patients. Unlike patients with hemophilia, patients with von Willebrand's disease rarely present with hemarthrosis. Instead, patients present with easy bruising, skin bleeding, or prolonged bleeding from mucosal surfaces like epistaxis, gingival bleeding, menorrhagia, and GI bleeding. Another characteristic of von Willebrand's disease is that patients have normal platelet count, normal PTINR, and a normal PTT. Bleeding time can be increased and factor VIII activity can be decreased, however. Let's go over the other answer choices. Choice B, factor VIII, is indicated for patients with severe disease like type 2 or 3. Desmopressin is still first line and you would start with that and escalate to factor VIII if the bleeding isn't controlled. Choice C, fresh frozen plasma, contains factors 2, 5, 7, 9, 10, 11, and should only be used in severe bleeding if factor VIII concentrate is not available. Choice D, vitamin K, is indicated for bleeding in patients taking vitamin K antagonists like warfarin. All right, Mega, you're up for the last question of the episode. A 70-year-old man with a history of chronic neck pain presents after a fall. On physical exam, he has a laceration to his chin. Motor strength is 2 out of 5 in his upper extremities and 4 out of 5 in his lower extremities. And he has decreased sensation to soft touch in both legs. Which of the following is the most likely diagnosis? Is it A, anterior cord syndrome? B, brown saccard syndrome? C, cauda equina syndrome? Or D, central cord syndrome? These questions used to confuse me, but they're actually really easy, so let's go over it. Our patient likely fell chin first onto the ground given the chin laceration. This is a clue that he probably sustained a hyperextension injury to the cervical spine, and he now has motor dysfunction in the upper, greater than lower extremities and decreased sensation in the legs. This is consistent with answer choice D, central cord syndrome. Central cord syndrome presents with bilateral motor weakness that's worse in the upper extremities. Patients also exhibit a variable degree of sensory loss below the level of the injury and bladder dysfunction. Risk factors for this injury include pre-existing cervical osteoarthritis and spondylosis as the cord is more likely to become compressed between hypertrophic bony segments and posterior ligaments. Central cord syndrome is also the most common incomplete spinal injury. Motor function is typically affected more as the motor spinal tracts run more centrally. ED management for central cord syndrome includes evaluation for other traumatic injuries with a focus on life-saving injuries first. Neurosurgical consultation is essential. About half of all patients with central cord syndrome have a good functional recovery. Running through the other answer choices, choice A, anterior cord syndrome, that's typically a result of a hyperflexion injury to the cervical spine. It presents with complete loss of motor, pain, and temperature below the injury with preservation of proprioception and vibratory sensation which run in the dorsal columns. These patients usually have a poor prognosis. Choice B, Brown-Sicard syndrome, that is a result of penetrating trauma and presents with ipsilateral loss of motor, vibratory sensation, and proprioception with contralateral loss of pain and temperature sensation. These patients have a good prognosis. In choice C, cauda equina syndrome, that usually presents with urinary retention and lower extremity weakness due to compression of the cauda equina. And with that, let's close out episode 50 with a rapid review.
A new holosystolic murmur over the mid-axillary line with signs of heart failure is consistent with acute mitral valve regurgitation. Think of inferior STEMI as a possible cause here. Immune thrombocytopenia presents with bleeding that is often preceded by a viral illness. It's treated with steroids and IVIG in most cases. For those with severe or life-threatening bleeding, platelet transfusion should be considered as well. Measles presents with a prodrome of fever and the three C's, coryza, cough, and conjunctivitis, followed by a diffuse maculopapular rash and coplic spots. A painful vesicular rash on an erythematous base in the anorectal area is consistent with herpes simplex proctitis. Diagnosis is clinical and treatment is with antivirals. Von Willebrand's disease presents with mucosal bleeding and the first-line treatment is desmopressin. Central cord syndrome is often the result of a hyperextension injury to the cervical spine. It presents with bilateral motor dysfunction that's greater in the upper extremities than the lower extremities. That wraps up Roshcast episode 50. Be sure to also check out the blog for questions from this episode and prior episodes, related images and tables, as well as bonus teaching points. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Roshcast, and you can always email us at roshcast at roshreview.com with any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. You can also help us pick questions by identifying ones that you'd like us to review. Write Roshcast in the submit feedback box as you go through the question bank. Lastly, if you have a minute, make sure to rate us and leave comments on iTunes to help spread the word about Roshcast. We'll be back soon with more high-quality reviews.